Hey there, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Haim Potok's novel, My Name is Asher Lev. This week, we are discussing the whole book. We're discussing to the end of the book. So uh, I guess that makes it part four. Next week, we're going to answer your questions. So if you would like to uh, submit a question for that, then you can do that on the thread on Facebook. Or better yet, you can post uh, a question beneath this episode on Substack. So just go to Substack, go to close, substack.com slash close reads, and you can uh, see where we exact, where we posted this episode and just in the, the comments down there, just leave your question for next week. Or of course, yeah, you can do it on the Facebook page, but we're trying to give people opportunities to contribute to the conversation who are not on Facebook or who would like to no longer be on Facebook. Uh, so, but before we get into the conversation on the book proper, Tim, Heidi, how's it going? Tim, you go first. How's it going? I just started daydreaming David, about if our whole Close Reads community migrated over to Substack, how happy that would be because it's the only, the only reason I go to Facebook anymore is because of Close Reads. I, I mean, every once in a while you'll get an update from a friend who, you know, is getting married or their, you know, baby is being blah, born. Blah, blah, blah. Right, right. And it's like, man. Who cares about I, that? <laughs> But I, I feel like that's happening even less. Maybe I'm wrong. I probably am wrong. Um, that people are having babies less or? No, that they're posting about it less oh, yes. on Facebook. Yes. I, that well, there's no evidence. Facebook's that internal data it. isn't great. So <laughs> yeah. it might true. be true. I don't know yeah. if you've heard this, Tim, but social media is a little bit controversial in the public square Wait, right now. What? I know. I know. There's this guy named Elon Musk and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's going to be making, a novel one day. I was making Can't a joke. I wrote it. I've been writing a lot for my clients and one of my clients is having a 20th anniversary and I make the joke in the beginning of their kind of welcome weekend. Um, Hey, we are 20 years old. That means that we're older than Twitter, but we might outlast Twitter. You know, that's the <laughs> little joke. We'll see if it, we'll see if it sticks. These are crazy times. Heidi, how are you? I'm doing great. I am having the best time. This is the happiest time of year. Look at I that mug she's got there, Tim. Muffins. I have my Santa mug. <laughs> so can Tomorrow's we describe David's birthday? Can we describe yeah, before true. we start talking about David's birthday the mug that Heidi is showing us? You can no longer see it. It's out Heidi, of, it's out of the Heidi, frame. You there was a need... Santa on it. Uh huh. It, could could you Tim? Could you do your best Heim Potok impression in describing this mug? No, because Heim Potok is an artist. <laughs> <laughs> but even you know Fair that's that enough. it was just you you having to artistically describe this mug would be would be very interesting though. I would love to see you see you attempt to uh, to do that. Okay, I, how about instead of being um, Heim Potok, I'll be Asher Lev. <laughs> Here it is. I saw the wintry scene. It filled me with deep, oh, there's the mug again there with deep emotions. Oh yeah, about my father. <laughs> disgust about my father <laughs> and fear of what it would lead to. I said nothing. I love it. Also, Christmas. It is a little ironic that we're reading this book at Christmas time. Yeah, yeah. Which didn't occur to me until we started reading it. I didn't think about it ahead of time or anything, but well, here we are. 
for Hanukkah. Nearly Christmas time. That's right. And we're talking <sighs> yeah, about Hanukkah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. This is um a real it's an amazing book. It's oh a, man, um, it's, I'm mean, dead. This book is like Oh me my dead. goodness. Yeah. So I'm gonna do a quick summary um just of what we got in this part. And I mean real quick, just as just to jot people's memories. I'm not gonna go into it very much, but Ash after Asher's parents go to Europe. He increases his work along with Jacob. Uh, eventually, eventually he himself goes to Europe and he visits Florence and um, he sees Michelangelo's David and he sees all kinds of other great works of art and in the end gets his own art shows. And the book climaxes with his second art show at which his parents are relieved to know there are no nudes, but they are disturbed to discover that there are two crucifixions. And then uh, the book ends with him being basically asked by the Rebbe to leave. Mm-hmm. That is a extremely simplified mm-hmm. uh, summary of all of part four. But um, we're going to dig into it a little bit deeper. But for those who maybe finished it a couple of weeks ago, I just kind of wanted to get those, those um, just kind of remind you of those, those highlights. So the broad strokes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Okay. <laughs> but um, Okay. So, one of the things I was thinking about is the way this book is like a mystery novel. Go on. And I was, I wrote, I was taking all these notes in the margins and I have this kind of specific individualized note annotation system for when I read. I don't like to highlight in my books. I don't like the process of doing that much to the chagrin of my, my own father and who, who of course has developed this whole highlighting system that he's taught many people to do and all that. But I've adapted some of that and I found myself reading the last 40 pages stuck somewhere in between breathlessly annotating every other line and breathlessly not being able to do anything but read on, (laughs) you know? And I was thinking about how, how it, it reads like a page turner. And I don't know that a thriller could have been more tense oh, than the scene right. where his parents oh, are at gosh. the showing and working their way through the, uh, the gallery towards the elevators uh, and, and those days leading up to it. it. It's like a detective trying to, you know, leading up to a, a hot on the trail hot on the trail and leading up to the confrontation yeah. or, or a gunfight or something where you know that a confrontation is coming and you're expecting some form of catharsis. And I, I was thinking about Aristotle, <laughs> of course. So, so what I wanted to, to know is, do you find the ending to this book to be cathartic? I'll just leave it at that. I won't go into it deeper, but I think catharsis is, is often tied to uh, mystery novels, crime novels, anything that's kind of thrillery and, and building to toward a point, uh, toward towards a sort of confrontation or a climax, uh, like a big one, you know. Um, and and then catharsis it is what often comes out of such confrontations. So Heidi, for you, you're someone that likes a good mystery novel. How <laughs> do. how does that? How, I mean, you don't have to tell me. You think it sort of like feels like reads like a mystery novel. That's just something I was thinking about. But it led that that thought led me to this question about catharsis. I did. So did you find this ending catharsis? Yeah, I I didn't make Cathartic. that conscious connection between this and the feeling of a mystery novel, but it absolutely works. I'm really glad you said that. I think that is exactly the same feeling I had, although I didn't consciously connect it. I also, I think I did consciously connect it a little bit with um with crime and punishment and that 
desire for like that, the tension you feel between justice and um, your affection for Raskolnikov. And, mm, mm. Uh, and then in the beginning, when you know, like everybody who opens that book knows he's going to murder the old lady, right? But it still has this like deep feeling of tension the whole time at the beginning. Mm. And, and it has that same painstaking attention to the details and the psychological impression that it makes on the, the, the agent of the action, um, just as it does with Asher Lev and with and Raskolnikov and kind of has that same sense. So anyway, I really like that connection, David. Um, I absolutely find this novel to be cathartic, like deeply, deeply so. What I thought you were going to ask, though, is if it's a tragedy. And I don't know if oh. I think it's a tragedy. Um, but, I've got that. I've got that on, yeah. on my notes. <laughs> okay. Um, but if a catharsis is a shedding of pity and fear that comes at a climactic moment in the story, then yes, this that uh the show for me is very cathartic how about you tim i think yes to the purgation of fear so just like you said heidi that's what kind of like the classic definition of catharsis is according to aristotle the purgation of pity and fear the fear part yes because man like the asher Finally, Asher and his father finally kind of have a reckoning over who each other is. And his father turns his back on him. Um, We don't hear another word from the father to Asher the entire rest of the book. Now, is it a purgation of pity? For me, I'm like, oh my gosh. I... I feel like Asher understands his father. His father does not understand him, and his father has, is going to now, he refuses to understand him. So I almost feel like it sort of dams up the pity, at least for Asher. Like, like he's, he's now completely alone. I mean, not even Anna Schaefer can understand him. His mentor, Jacob Kahn, is so ill Maybe he'll be better, but right now his his mentor, like alternative father figure, um, is too ill to really tend to him. And his mother is like truly betwixt he and father. And I feel like the pity part of the book deliberately, I mean, this is part of the craft of the author, damned up the pity. Because I feel like I feel like at the end of the book, like I'm like trying to hold water in my hands and I can't let it go. Does that make sense, Heidi? Yeah, I really like that feeling holding water in your hands analogy that you're almost like chasing it on his behalf. Like you, mm-hmm. So I do feel an immense amount of pity, but I like how you said it was damned up. Although mm. I think, I think that there's some really essential clues within the story that this is a redemptive moment for Asher. Mm. Um, Which moment in not particular? Not an aborted moment. Do you mean like it, when the way his parents respond? No, I mean some consolations. Mm. Um, I think the Rebbe's um, 
statement, I, even though the Rebbe casts him out, the Rebbe seems to give him a blessing. He does actually overtly give him a blessing. I give yeah, you my blessing, but yeah. you have yeah. to leave, right? Yeah. And and that and so I I'd, I'd love to talk about what that blessing is. Like, what mm. is the nature of that blessing? Um, and so I think that's redemptive. I think his double statement that happens two times in the novel, and I don't have it at the ready, but I could find it, that the master of the universe is, has, uh, he's following the master of the universe in his art and mm. that he has a, a union. I think he, this novel ends with a union between his faith and his art, um, but a union that costs him everything. Um, and, but I think there's clues within the novel that it's not a deeper division, but a unity for Asher. Even if that means he's cast out of his community well, or yeah. he willingly exiles himself. I think so. But I think that's part of the complexity of the novel is that that remains debatable and highly sad. I don't know if it's tragic in the technical sense, but it's deeply moving and mm -hmm. terribly sad. So I don't know if we want to talk about all that yet, but I think you're, the question of pity, the, the purgation of pity is connected with my personal interpretation of the end and that's why i bring it up well i mean we talked last time about the idea of this false dichotomy that's perhaps being argued by both jacob khan and by his father and can can asher like we said the big question of the novel that to that point was can asher be the unifying force between right. these different traditions and even the notion of tradition comes up and we and he says i didn't have a way of expressing what I needed to express in the tradition that I was given. So I had to turn to this artistic tradition and we even are given the idea of like an aesthetic vision and a moral vision. Right. And like, right. The father, his father says, you know, can you, can those two things be combined? So I think it's fair to ask now, now that we've come to the end to go back to that question that we asked last time, can Asher be a unifying force between these different worldviews, between these different visions, between uh, these dichotomies that are being presented by the two sides that he internally senses or or hopes are making are being presented as a false dichotomy. What do you think the book is saying in the end about that, Tim? What do you think? I mean, in the end, having read this again, do you think that he is able to unify those two things? That he's able to resolve the false dichotomy, or does he prove that it isn't a false dichotomy? That's the other alternative. Everything in me wants to say he can unify these things, both this community that he was born and raised in, that he has fealty to, um, and his gift as an artist and the tradition that he has given himself to. Everything in me wants to say those two things can be unified and are unified at the end of the book, but I don't think so. I have one, I, I will need to defend one piece of text in order to make my claim, which is that, that kind of realization that Asher has about kind of like the power that he has as, as an artist. It's both the power to heal and destroy. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I would need to reckon with that. But right now, I feel like, no, he, here's an analogy. Um, at Socrates' trial, he's found guilty and he's given a choice. The choice is if he exiles himself, if he chooses to be exiled, 
then he can keep his life. And of course, Socrates is like, nope, you're going to have to kill me. Um, but my question is, could Socrates have been a loyal Greek, and he was a thoroughgoing Greek, and he was very proud of that, and he loved his people. Could he both be an exile and be a Greek? And I think Socrates would say, no, there's no such thing. You know, how could, I mean, how can I go live in Persia, in Macedonia, and still be a Greek, still be like true and loyal to my people? I can't do that. Um, and so, among other reasons, he chooses no. And I feel that way about Asher. I don't feel that he can be... I, I think being exiled from his community is the kind of death knell to any sort of unity. Yeah. It's, it's, that, that, on the surface, at least, seems yeah. like he's... They're kicking him out. So how could it, yeah. you know, he's being literally back on him. de-unified. Yeah. At least he is. What do you, what do you think, Heidi? I am going to present the alternative perspective on this, which I think that the novel is complex enough to support both of these interpretations and the tension between them is the point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, besides we love a good close reads argument. I know, so. right. <laughs> um, so debate, debate, right? debate. <laughs> or alternative perspectives, right? <laughs> no, no, we want to debate. <laughs> yes. Um, I, so I have three points. Um, number one, she's coming, she's coming at you, Tim. She's got yeah, three I points. I love it. I love um, it. Number one is the nature of the painting itself of crucifixion two, uh, that the paint, both of them, but specifically the second one, um, the truer one, um, that it is a painting like in, it is a painting that paints the thing that was missing in Asher throughout the story, which is humility and repentance, like an understanding of what his mother specifically has done for him and his own grief and his own sorrow and repentance at his contribution to the family and the community's suffering that's pain. He knows it's going to cause that. He's going to, it's going to cause more division, but, but he does it because it's truer. Mm. And, and that depth of repentance is necessary for anybody's individual and communal salvation. And this is his only language with which he can express that. So I think the painting itself gives evidence to a unity between faith and art mm. um, and his own particular salvation. That's only my first point, but I see can you we, raising can we a clarifying question. Yeah. A clarifying question. His repentance for what? For his contribution to the suffering of his mother specifically. Mm. At a, and, uh, and when he was younger. His, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, the cost that, that like he realized this is his painting of his own selfishness he is putting her on a cross and he is down there at her feet seeing her suffer and contributing to it right he's put her up there Mm. in visual form and he's so grieved by that he finally Mm. sees it which has been utterly missing from him throughout the whole story and it's interesting that he discovers this this is revealed to him 
by basically staring at the Pieta. Yes. Mm. Like yes. he he stares at these paintings for two years or whatever months in Europe, and slowly they work on him and they like they reveal themselves. They reveal himself to him by revealing yes. themselves to him by by paying attention to them. The truth in them works on him. I was thinking a lot about how there's this question of like, hi, we'll come back to your other two points. Yeah. Uh, the idea of um um the aesthetic versus the moral which the father presents you know he says you've had an aesthetic education but have you had a moral one and so i've been thinking a lot at the end of the book like most of this book on the surface seems to be about him having an aesthetic coming of age right it's a coming of age story about this artist becoming a great artist and and understanding his own gift and harnessing it people recognizing it having great success but is it also a moral coming of age story like is what his father is actually worried about being happening and Heidi, would you say that the painting, the, the the content of the painting itself reveals that he also is having a moral coming of age? Yes. That his father, if his if he had the eyes to see, would be pleased by. I yes, I do think that that's true. Okay. I think it's like a sincere embodiment of a cathartic moment for him, which is. I think quite beautiful. And it, it's, it's humility and repentance, which he's lacking until that moment. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's true. Okay. That's All right, my second point. My second point is the rabbi's blessing. And the fact that the rabbi doesn't send him out into the world. He's not like, now you're a goy, leave. He sends him to the yeshiva in Paris where he mm-hmm. says, like his, what the rabbi says to him is that you are too, this is on page 366, you are too close here to people you love. You are hurting them and making them angry. They are good people. They do not understand you. He doesn't, he, the rabbi doesn't say you have done wrong. He says they don't understand you. Um and earlier, he says, I do not hold with those people who believe that all painting and sculpture is from the Sitra Akra. He also condemns what he also goes on in that same paragraph to say what you have done has caused harm, which leaves the I think the interpretation open to Tim's point, which is that he went too far that and cut himself off. But the rabbi doesn't cut himself off from Judaism. He doesn't say now you have gone too far for the faith. He just says you've gone too far for this local community. And then he sends him to Paris. And, um, and we have clues within the book that he's going to Paris to marry and, and, and to live and continue to do art. Um, then he's, and the rabbi gives him more than one blessing, which I don't, at 367, he says, I give you my blessings, which seems to me to be, I don't know if that's reading too much into it, but I, that to me seems to be a blessing on your art and a blessing on your Jewishness. Um, I also, my third point is at the bottom of 367, which is the direct voice from the master of the universe that comes as a result of his question is acknowledgement of his power, power to amuse and horrify, power to create and destroy, to bring power pleasure and pain and pain there was in that hand the demonic and the divine at one and at the same time so to tim's point he can do just as much harm as he can do good he's not guaranteed to do either one right and that's the great risk that he takes and that we all take but on the bottom of page 367 he prays and he says master of the universe will i live this way all the rest of my life Yes, came the whisper from the branches of the trees. Now journey with me, my Asher. Paint the anguish of all the world. Let people see the pain. 
but create your own molds and your own play of forms for the pain. We must give a balance to the universe. And I, I think that balance to the universe is the union of faith and art that he's called to at massive personal cost. And I don't think that the cost is because what he's doing is wrong. I think it's because they don't understand. That's my interpretation. Mm. And those are my points. Would you like to uh, offer yeah. a refutation? Yeah. <laughs> For me, I, I, the big disagreement point I think mm. is that I don't see um, Asher's coming of a, I see, Asher's coming of age is not a moral maturing. I really do see it as an aesthetic maturing. And, and my analogy would be, I think that the way that the book looks at his, what are we going to call it, um, condition, his gift, I think it might be something like, it's not autism, but I think that we should think of it as something like autism, which is not a moral category. Autism is a moral category. I don't think that that uh, Asher's artistic gifts are a moral category, and yet they have the capacity to cause hurt, just like an autistic child has the capacity to cause hurt, to cause pain to their parents. So I don't really see... I see him looking mm -hmm. at his mother and how torn she was between him and his father as just he feels awful about that because his mother, who he loves, is in pain. But I'm, I'm reluctant to say, and this is a kind of, um, this is a repentance. He's taking ownership for what he caused because, as I said, I think think of the artistic gift as more, it's much more aesthetic, aesthetic. And also he was a boy, you know? Um, and I don't know that I would put any sort of like moral blame on him for wanting to stay home when his dad goes to Russia and all the things, all the things that caused his mother, caused his mother pain. Now, okay. I, I appreciate the point about like the Rebbe is not casting him out of Judaism. That's a, I mean, that's absolutely right. Um, okay. Can I ask a follow-up question? Yeah. Okay. How to, how to phrase this. Um, in the paintings, do uh, just uh, Brooklyn Crucifixion 1 and 2, right. do you think that Asher is betraying his people? Oh my gosh, that is such a good question. <laughs> Tim is he's staring. He's he's looking to the gods right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> I need help. I need help with this one. Um, I mean, Heidi, you could jump in. I mean, I, right. it's something I've been thinking a lot about. Yeah, I think it's a really. I think that both that like silence there mm -hmm. um, <laughs> is necessary for any kind of honest examination of that question because as a christian i'm not sure i could even i i could ever honestly answer that question because i believe that christ is the fulfillment of jewish of of judaism however from that 
I, I, as best as I can enter into the mind of the novel, which mm-hmm. has taught me so much about mm-hmm. the Jewish faith, I think, I think it could go either way. I honestly think that's a debatable point. Mm. Um, because the book seems to directly affirm by a Orthodox Jewish author that there is no symbol other than the crucifixion, right? There's no, there's no symbol within Judaism that would express the ascetic. And I think the moral, I would continue to argue that like a state of Asher and the painting other than the crucifixion. What he says is like, I cannot say what I want to say. I cannot paint what I want to paint without this symbol. I can't capture the suffering without right. this ultimate symbol of suffering that the tradition and has given us. And that symbol of suffering is reflecting the, the suffering of my people and my family that is deeply Jewish. Mm. Yet, even as that symbol has right. meant suffering exactly. for them historically. Right. And caused suffering for them mm-hmm. as Asher is causing it to his people. Right. And that is the complexity and the brilliance of this novel. Like, mm. I just can't, like, I I don't have the words to, I. this is like the best novel I've read all year by a mile. And maybe what, in one of the best novels I've ever read in my whole life because of the complexity of the question yeah. you're asking right now, David. However, to argue the other side, the Jewish faith overtly teaches, especially his family has taught him to honor his father and mother, which is one of the Ten mm-hmm. Commandments, and to stay away from nudes and crucifixions. And he just flouted that right under his family and his rabbi. Like, and that is therefore inherently a betrayal of what he's been taught and the traditions of his faith. So I think that question is almost, I I don't know how to answer it. How about this? I I agree, Heidi, that I think it's a betrayal, but a different most betrayal. So um, Hmm. when Judas betrays Christ, he does so with intent. He knows exactly what he's doing. I think that Asher does betray his people by using the symbol and figuring of the crucifixion, given what that means in his community. So I think it's a betrayal in that way. And yet the intent is for something very different. So I, I, that's part of the reason why I see this book much more as an aesthetic. I, I interpret it much more aesthetically because Asher is, does not have intentions to betray his people with malice. But ye, there's no way that he could use the symbol of the crucifixion and not kind of betray his people. But he's using it as an artistic, is part of an artistic tradition that he belongs to one of the things that is interesting that he he talks about the um the painting kind of springing out of him right and he paints he paints in this he doesn't even know how many days have passed that he's working on it and and he sort of comes out of a daze and and it's finished that's not exactly how he describes it but you know what i'm saying yeah 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 and 
then then it's finished and then it gets taken from him mm. and to perhaps to do the painting to create the painting is not the betrayal perhaps the betrayal is when the painting gets hung up in mm. the gallery and it gets presented to the world and it draws the rest of the community into it and that That's had me a great thinking point, of, David. Well, that had me thinking a lot about Jacob Kahn, who says multiple times throughout the books, don't be a whore. You know, yeah. don't don't be an don't whore out your artistry. Yeah. And does he in a way allow his work, his expression, his like confession to become to use the term that they're using in the book, whored by Anna, mm. and that that's what the that's where the betrayal comes in? Like that's where the response comes. Mm. Is that is that possible? I mean, like he, he uh, Jacob keeps bringing that idea up and this notion of um, the artist as a horror is something yeah. that the book returns to. I mean, Heidi, what do you think of that? I mean, sorry you're muted, but <laughs> yeah, I agree. I don't. I don't think that the moral supersedes the aesthetic development of Asher. I think that they're tied hand in hand. I think as he develops as an as an artist, he develops as a human. And, um, and that is because his, as, as Tim said, I, I, I do, I do see the gift as from the master of the universe. I think the novel does too, but I like what you said about it being something that he can't help, right? It's not, it's, it, in that sense, it's like an affliction <laughs> more mm-hmm. than a gift, right? Right. right. Um, and um, and therefore, his aesthetic and his his aesthetic identity and his moral identity, his spiritual identity, his and just his individual personhood are all inextricably tied together and irrevocably tied together throughout his whole life. Um, yeah. The question, David's question is really, Mm -hmm. it sounds, it's the right question because right. Making the painting without any sort of public eyes on it. He he is trying to convey how he feels about his mom. Mm -hmm. It's the question of by letting it be put on display is he, I mean, he knows what that's going to mean, not just to his parents, but he knows what it's going to mean for him as an artist. Mm-hmm. He is an Orthodox Jew and he's painting a crucifix and, oh my goodness, this is shocking. But what I don't hear from him is any indication that this is going to be like good for his career. The only thing that I hear in his internal monologue is, Maybe we can take this down. Maybe I don't have to show it. Maybe my parents won't see it. Maybe Anna will let me doctor it a little bit. You know? So I don't feel like he is doing this for any sort of kind of like artistic notoriety. Yeah. Or just for the glory. Nevertheless. Or just for the glory, right. Nevertheless, the pain that it causes his community is not done in the private painting of his studio. It's done when it's made public. And so I think David's question kind of still mm-hmm. stands, right? Of course, I agree. And he, but to your point, Tim, 
his, he also doesn't seem to have any um, qualms about it being the best thing he's ever done. Like he knows it's a masterpiece. Like he knows this, yeah. yeah. Right. And, um, but he, he wants it to be true. That's what's so mm. important to him. He wants it. He wants to show it because it's the truest thing he's ever done because yeah. it makes him a real artist. As David said, like, he's not a whore. Right. And like, he didn't stop. He was, he didn't stop with crucifixion one in a way that would have mitigated the impact mm. um, on his community. And he, he wanted to tell the true thing. And that to me seems very noble, but also <laughs> every, also just like the massive personal cost to that is mm. what's like, it has like the pathos of the story. Mm. And so it raises the question of, is it worth it? Mm-hmm. Hey, sorry to interrupt the scintillating conversation you're listening to right now, but I'm Brandon LeBlanc, OG fan and occasional contributor to Close Reads. You love books and book podcasts. You're listening to this one and many of you are subscribers to the Close Reads Substack. But is it really enough? Don't you wish there was another bookish podcast? Maybe covering a little different fare from people you trust? Well, as David might say, I have some interesting information for you. The Cersei Podcast Network, home to the plays The Thing, Quiddity, and Proverbial, has just launched Overdue Classics to help you read all those books you should have read already but haven't. The ones staring at you from your bookshelves and nightstands. You know the ones. Join me, Matt Bianco, and Andrea Lipinski on a journey into the classics. You can find Overdue Classics on all your podcast apps or at CerseiInstitute.org backslash podcast. Now back to your regularly scheduled program. Did you guys know that uh, Haim Potok, paint, he was a painter himself. He painted something called Brooklyn Crucifixion. What? In real life. But he didn't do a second one that was supposed to be better. So the Brooklyn Crucifixion 1 is part of his something he did in his life. Brooklyn oh, wow. Crucifixion 2, which is like the fulfillment of that, the improvement on it, is something he makes up for the story here. Huh. I find that pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I've, got, I've got a question and then I want to read something before you answer that. So here's the question. At the end of the book, is the response of his parents and community just or unjust? Okay. Now with that question in mind... You are on mind, a roll with these yeah, good questions are. today. Killing it, David. <laughs> okay. So now with that in mind, while you're thinking, I'm going to read two paragraphs from the beginning of the book. Mm. Like the first... I'm going to... Well, I'll read the first page, basically. It's like, like I have to. My name is Asher Lev. The Asherlev, about whom you read in newspapers and magazines, about whom you talk so much at your dinner affairs and cocktail parties, the notorious and legendary love of the Brooklyn crucifixion. I'm an observant Jew. Yes, of course, observant Jews do not paint crucifixions. As a matter of fact, observant Jews do not paint at all in the way that I'm painting. So strong words are being written and spoken about me. Myths are being generated. I'm a traitor an apostate, a self-hater, an inflictor of shame upon my family, my friends, my people. Also, I'm a mocker of sac ideas sacred to Christians, a blasphemous manipulator of modes and forms revered by Gentiles for 2,000 years. Well, I am none of these things. And yet, in all honesty, I confess that my accusers are not altogether wrong. I am indeed in some way all of those things. The fact is that gossip, rumors, myth-making, and news stories 
are not appropriate vehicles for the communication of nuances of truth, those subtle tonalities that are often the truly crucial elements in a causal chain. So it is time for the defense, for a long session in demythology. But I will not apologize. It is absurd to apologize for a mystery. And that is what it has been all along, a mystery of the sort theologians have in mind when they talk about concepts like wonder and awe. First of all, when you read that after having read it, you saw this, you know, this is a book that you go back to previous passages and it, it's just all so well put together. So well um, put together. Like the Muhammad Ali of books. Or the crucifix. <laughs> <laughs> um, he talks about how it's the time for, for the defense. So I want to I go back to this question that I just asked. At the end of the book is the response of his parents and his community just or unjust because it seems as if he is suggesting by the frame that he offers here that he thinks perhaps their their response is unjust or at least that he has a defense for what he did so on the one hand is were they are they just or are they being unjust in their response to him and then and then I, I you know how and how is he defending himself in this book when you look back at the totality of the book in what ways do you see it as a defense for the mystery that he is he's off that he is suggesting this all is Tim, you want to go first? So it's so, funny if Tim was just like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I think his defense is, I mean, just as it says in that last paragraph that you read, David, a kind of preservation of the mystery of creation, of artistic creation. I, I think he is neither... Um, like he just sees what is. He knows that he must do this. He knows that this is like the gift that's been given him. He knows what it's going to do to his community. And still he must do it. You know, I, I think that's the resolution of the book. And I think that he's kind of not ignorant of the fact that what he did caused harm. Um, and yet I think he is saying, yeah, but I won't take blame for it. Not in some haughty way, um, but just because this is the mystery of his life and of this particular gift that he has. Such a, I, I don't know. I think that Tim, I think you're right. Although I didn't, so we're, we're also reading. She's, um, she's like, oh, I think oh, you're right. Um, <laughs> begrudging. No, I'm just kidding. That's not begrudging at all. I, I didn't. I, I'm interested in your question, David, because I didn't read the novel at all as a defense. And so I. I didn't either. So that's when I yeah. went back to it and I thought he tells us the beginning it's a defense. But if yeah. it, how if, if that's true, how it mm. feels the novel feels more confessional to me than defensive. Mm. Um. I think if he were to give his defense, if you're, I mean, he says it's a mystery, um, but it seems to me that his, the art speaks for for itself defense, the master of the universe saying, go out and paint the pain of the world. Um, and his continued 
the fact that he's not a goy, that he still is a practicing Orthodox Jew with the blessing of his rabbi. Like that to me seems like the practical defense. Although, like I said, the novel feels more confessional and more like a frank acknowledgement of mystery. And especially in contrast to the novel that we're doing over on Patreon, Till We Have Faces, which is an active uh, accusation against the gods and defense of her of of the narrator's actions that are clearly meant to be unreliable to us as the readers mm-hmm. and that contrasted with Asher Lev like the two have vastly different tones um and um but i think probably his mm. strongest case would be the tim's point is the ascetic one so what but what is the mystery that he's referring to there is it the mystery of creation the mystery of why i became no, that I, was I, my question. I became good at art. That I was an artist, despite I'm obviously not talking about me. That I that Asher became an artist, despite the conditions that he grew up in, the the lack of artistic sensibility in the community, the the complete surprise of it. The there's no clear derivation of his talents. You know, is that I mean is could, is the idea I that read I read what I please. Think, I mean the last thing that I would want to do almost in any. Is reveal a mystery? Is reveal a mystery? But I think um, what I'm about to read is both like an explanation of the mystery without just obliterating it. Yeah, so you're saying points to, last to the mystery. Page, third to last page. Yeah, um, page three sixty seven. Mm-hmm. Asher Lev, uh, I stopped in front of a mound of snow and with my finger drew in one continuous line the contour of my face. Asher Lev in snow on a cold Brooklyn Parkway. Asher Lev, Hasid, Asher Lev, painter. I looked at my right hand, the hand with which I painted. There was power in that hand, power to create and destroy, power to bring pleasure and pain, power to amuse and horrify. There was in that hand the demonic and the divine at one and the same time. The demonic and the divine were two aspects of the same force. Creation was demonic and divine. Creativity was demonic and divine. Art was demonic and divine. The solitary vision that put new eyes into gouged out sockets was demonic and divine. I was demonic and divine. Asher Lev, son of Arya and Rivka Lev, was the child of the master of the universe and the other side. Mic drop. I mean, I think that's, I, yeah. I, that would be my... That is his articulation of the mystery, yeah. I think. I mean, that next sentence, though, is huge, too. Asher Love paints good pictures and hurts people he loves. Yeah, yeah. Then be a great painter, Asher Love, says Jacob. In the end, it seems like he's, he keeps going back to Jacob's advice, but I don't, I don't think I come out of the book ever really knowing whether Jacob is actually wise. Right. Mm. Which, is, which is one of the tricks, the tricky things for me about this book, because he adores, Asher adores Jacob. And um, maybe as a narrator, he's a little skeptical of him, but he will reveres him. Maybe is the word <laughs> more than he adores him. Right. And he seems to, this is, this is Ash. Jacob's the one that said, you're going to hurt people. So just be great at it. Like he, you. Yeah. Like, so then is the book saying, um, you're going to hurt people no matter what. So be great at what you do. Like be a great painter. That's what your gift is. Be a great painter despite hurting people. Mm. Is that what he's defending? Is that like, the mystery you've been given this gift 
you're going to hurt people. You can't help that. You have to be great at it and not worry what other people think. Hmm. I don't know because he, he doesn't, I think that if that was it, it would be the wrong way to be a great artist because you can't separate aesthetics from morality. I don't believe you can because otherwise it, as Tim says, it become quoting the book, it becomes demonic like that. In order to be a good painter and to tell the truth, you have to have a moral connection to the universe. You have to you have compassion and judgment, right? It's it's unique. Art is unique in the sense that to tell the truth, you have to have a a heightened sense of perception. And and so it's not like being like a stockbroker when you're like, you you don't have to take into account how anybody feels in order to accumulate massive amounts of money. You have to actually have a, to be an artist, you have to actually have some kind of antenna for, uh, to perceive people and reality and emotion and right and wrong and put that into like, he could not have painted that painting without a, I think without a moral sense, like they're completely united um, because of the anguish that he is, that he feels called by the master of the universe to paint in his paintings. So he cannot just cut himself off from humanity. He has to leave himself open, vulnerable and woundable to pain. That section that Tim, you just read seems to, if you keep going there, it kind of shifts in its structure, it seems like, and in a way that I think speaks to what Heidi's talking about. Because you you finished where, on the other side, and then it says Asherlev. So you finished with that sentence, Asherlev was the child of the master of the universe and the other side. Mm-hmm. Asherlev paints good pictures and hurts people he loves. And I'm surprised, it's, it's interesting that there's not a paragraph break here, because it's as if he begins to have, the narrator himself here is having an internal dialogue. And I wonder if this is Asherlev later, writing the book that's having that's thinking here, or if it's Asher Lev with his finger in the snow that thinks this next bit, then be a great painter, Asher Lev. Like there's this somebody telling him this, and at first it calls to mind Jacob, but I can't help but wonder if the implication here is he's having a conversation with the master of the universe. Mm. The master of the universe is speaking to him like he does in the trees earlier, the wind, where he gives him the answer in the wind. That will be the only justification for all the pain you cause. So that's a direct quote. But as a great painter, I will cause pain again if I must, then become a great painter but I will cause pain again and become a still greater painter Mm. master of the universe. Will I live this way all the rest of my life? Heidi read this earlier. Yes. Came the whisper from the branches of the trees that journey with me, my Asher paint the anguish of all the world. Let people see the pain, but create your own molds and your own plays of form for the pain. We must give a balance to the universe. Yes. I said, yes, my own play of forms for the pain. This, then you basically have the scene ends and he moves on like yeah. later that afternoon. So Heidi, would you say that how to ask the question that flitted across my, <laughs> one of the questions that, that I, here's a taken for granted and Heidi, maybe you can bounce off this, um, that the true and the good and the beautiful are unified ultimately in the person of God 
I take as like a reality. This side of the veil, they oftentimes do not appear to be unified. And I think that the task of his father is very simply one of, it is a moral task. It is to fix the pain and the anguish that had been inflicted upon his people. And I think that Asher is a good person, but his task is very different. It is to see and to state what he sees. And so, I mean, ultimately are the good and the beautiful in league with each other? Yeah, I think so. I think this book is sort of, um, this book is suggesting that that unity right now um, is very difficult to see. And I think that that part of Asher's story is right here, he's recognizing I have both of those things in me and I have to embrace both of those things. And I don't know how they're going to be integrated, you know, but they, but he's going to embrace both those things. David, did you have your question more or like, not really, not really. I don't really have the question. I have an impression of a question. (laughs) (laughs) I, I want to also throw into the mix something that I'm not super familiar with, but I do know to be true about Jewish mysticism is that there's a lot that that whole question of the demonic and the divine and the interaction and the interrelatedness between them is very different in Jewish thought than it is in Christian thought. Mm. And Jewish mysticism is is quite dualistic in the sense that there's these two powers, like a yin and yang kind of thing, although yin yang is Eastern mysticism and not the same, but it has, it's that we as Western thinkers are maybe a little more familiar with that idea of yin and yang, but within Jewish mysticism, there is this idea of competing forces and opposites that need to synthesize together in order to be balanced, right? The idea of balance of the universe is something very specific and technical within Jewish mystical theology. Um, Christians have a very different understanding. We're not dualists as Christians. We, we don't think in terms of good and evil as opposite forces um, or opposing forces, excuse me, we don't think of them as opposing forces, but as opposites. Like, so good is the only real thing and evil is the primation, the privation of good is classical Christian theology. That's different in, in Jewish mystical thinking and theology. And so that understanding adds a lot more depth to, to, uh, what he, what he says there in that paragraph that you read so beautifully about the mystery that, and, and it sheds, I think, more light on, um, the, on, on, on the competing forces that Asher feels in his own life and why this book is portrayed over and over again as two equal competing forces meeting each other and pushing against each other out Mm -hmm. of balance. Right. And so the point is not for, um, which of course shows up in the painting, his mother has two things to two things she loves opposing forces right and that's the structure of the novel and that's what creates the complexity on the psychological level but also there's there's an element on the mystical jewish theological level that is inherent within this novel that we as christians might not 
catch without a little bit of, of, um, of some understanding of that. And so I think within that paragraph, that's why it's such a mystery. It's not just a matter of choosing the good and rejecting the evil, right? It's, it's, if this is, there is the demonic and the divine in my art, how do I bring balance to them? Not just cast out darkness, Mm -hmm. uh, but, but bring darkness in, in order and balance it out. Um, and, and so that like darkness and light should be there in equal measure. Right. Um, and, and so that I think adds more depth of understanding to the questions that are being raised by the novel. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, that sounds exactly right to me. Um, I, I want to ask, no, I'll just tell you how I, felt like walking away from mm-hmm. our cast of characters. I love the Rebbe so much. Oh my goodness. I love him for such a, um, for a character who gets relatively few scenes. Oh my goodness. Just the embodiment of wisdom. He solves this dilemma of Asher in a way that's extremely painful to Asher, but it's just, and he solves it for his community in a way that, you know, pain had been inflicted on them. But it's just, he solves it for his parents in a way that's just, he's, I just love him. Um, I was so angry at his dad at the end. Oh my goodness. They re- so you'd answer my question earlier and say that he was unjust in his response. I think his dad is unjust in his response. Um, because at some point he stopped trying to understand of course he was offended. Of course his father was offended. But the reason that his father was offended is he didn't know. He just refused to learn about his son. He was just terrified of his son and what his son could kind of like do to him. And at some point in the novel, two thirds of the way through, he just said, no more. This is not part of my world. And what's additionally tragic is when he comes back from Russia and he sees that his son is this decorated artist, he starts to warm to him. And he yeah, starts there's to this moment where you think it's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. They actually finally have a conversation about totally. the nudity question. Totally. I mean, so on one hand, I can understand why his father, as a loyal Orthodox Jew doing the work that he did, I can absolutely understand it. But his father has so much proximity and potential love for his son. He could have understood, but he decided not to. Do you, do you have sympathy for him and yet for uh, sure. upset with him? Sure. Okay. Tons of sympathy. I mean, like yeah. seeing Which we talked his about last wife week on a cross as a Jew. I mean, like with Viennese music, did you guys pick up on that? Like Vienna, the place that hates Jews, that's the music that's playing in this... Probably a zither or something. Yeah, yeah, right. It's like the worst possible scenario for him. Um, And yet I think that if he had taken the step toward his son earlier in the book, I think that I think he could have understood. I think it still would have hurt. I think it still could have been confusion, but I think that he could have, the relationship would have been preserved. Do you think that had his father worked to understand him earlier, Asher could have been, the painter that he became. Oh man, man, you were on fire, David. (laughs) (laughs) 
I actually kind of think so. You think he still could have? Yeah. I mean, I, I think about the picture of his mom, the, you know, Brooklyn Crucifix one and two, both of them are painted from memories about how he felt earlier. And maybe he still felt that way to some degree, but his mom, she's torn. She's torn in two directions, her love for him, her love for her people, her love for him, her work for her people. But so I still think that those feelings would have been there that gave rise to those two masterpiece paintings. Um, and I think that he could have, yeah, been a great painter and been united with his father. I think so. I think you shook your head. I think pensively. not. You don't think so? No. How come? You because think I don't has- think there's any distinction between his aesthetic and his moral development. I think they are paired. I think he had to suffer that deeply in order to become a great painter. However, to your so point, he- there could have maybe been a different form of suffering that created a different painting rather than the crucifixion. But Do you, do you think it's possible perhaps that he would have been able to attain the skill necessary to be a great painter, but what he needed was to go through the suffering to acquire the vision that would allow him to paint a a masterpiece. Yeah, maybe. I, I, I do think that, I mean, could, could Dostoevsky have written crime and punishment without being who he was? No, he had to have that Russian soul to, and his own deep, shattered life in order to have written that novel same way I think for Asher if you can paint he could have had so like a spider for example is a great artist but the webs are empty right there's you have to have content to meet the form and I think that his suffering was necessary for him to become a great artist more than just a skilled artist He's called in the end to paint the anguish of the world. Exactly. People see the pain, but he also says you have to create forms for it. Mm-hmm. It's like this recognition that the forms that we have aren't aren't enough. Insufficient. That's like right. Kind of a big calling. Create new forms right. to express the pain, the anguish of the world. Yeah, it's it's such a complex novel, man. I just love it. I'm like crazy about it. I can't oh stop thinking about it. Tim, what did you want to add? Yeah, go go go. Well, I want to go back to like the very first thing that we, I can't remember exactly what your question was, David, but kind of like this, um, can Asher both be an Orthodox Jew, Hasidic Jew and a great painter? Can those two things be, I can't remember if you said united or balanced, reconciled. Yeah. Yeah. I think that he can hold both those things. I think the book is abundantly clear. He can hold both of those things at the same time. The thing that I don't believe is that they can be, I don't think they can be integrated. I think the only way they could be integrated, uh, yeah, I'm going to say this, I think would be if that community integrates them themselves. And I, th- I mean, because I think that's the big rupture in the book is that he holds all the beliefs of the Hasidic people, but he is ruptured from the practitioners of those beliefs. Um, I think if the Hasidic people in Brooklyn at this time 
can embrace in some way the Western artistic tradition, and maybe that's an impossibility. I, I totally admit that might be impossibility. But if they could be integrated, then I think that Asher could be integrated. But as it stands now, I don't think so. They, he can just hold the two traditions at the same time, but they can't be woven in together and be part of the same tapestry. That's that brings up a question that I've been thinking about. Do you think that that the book that our narrator here, that Asher, older Asher, um, do you think he sympathizes with the Orthodox Jewish perspective on the Western artistic tradition, or do you think he thinks that it, that that it's just kind of nonsense and that it needs to be that he needs to be like an apologist for the Western tradition among people who have typically rejected it. Are you talking about Potok or Asher Lev? Well, no, that's a, like, are you asking if the book is defending the Western artistic tradition or that Asher feels the need to given? Okay. You think that that it's defending the Western artistic tradition. I, what I'm wondering is, do you think that the book, I don't, Oh, go ahead. That the book is critical of the Orthodox Jewish perspective on, like, do you think it's saying that that's, that their perspective is nonsense? Once again, I think that, no, I mean, no, I, 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 I just don't I, think the book I don't, I don't just, is, yeah, record, I don't right, right, even right. as I think it's defending yeah. the, art, the Western tr- artistic tradition. I don't think that it's, yeah. I just think the book is not taking a position. It's presenting opposing sides and, and, and even not even opposing sides, opposing forces. It's a, it's, it's that dualism that we talked about um, and yeah. attempting to find a harmony uh, or asking the question if a harmony can be found. Um, to Tim's point. And so I, I don't think that the book is Western in the sense that it presents two sides and then takes a stand on one over the other. And I don't think that Asher is a thinker. He's a feeler and an artist. And so I, he's barely able to say words half the time. Yeah. Like, right. right. Like his, most of his responses are, I looked at him. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. So, I think that he's, he's not like his, his project is not propositional. It's imaginative and experiential. Mm. 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 Hey, Tim, I know you got to go. You got hard out here in three minutes. You want to offer some final thoughts before we wrap this up? And then next week we'll do the Q and a, I am hoping that I can use this opportunity to lobby for another Chempotak book to be, read at some point in the future of this podcast. The Chosen is such a wonderful book also. I've never read it. I can't oh, wait. It's so good. I ordered every book that he wrote Did as you? soon as I read <laughs> Asher Love. So good. So. Um, yeah. I, I feel like we could do like two wrap-up episodes on this book because there's so much there's so much here, but, but. Well, everybody's waiting we with bated breath for Heidi's duty and desire article on this book. Are you going to write one, Heidi? It's all about, well, well yeah, now I yeah, actually have to, because I just. No, published yeah, it. of course I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You need to do that, Heidi. Competing forces. We're always mm-hmm. looking for harmony. Mm-hmm. You guys want to meet somebody? Yeah. yeah. Who are we going to meet? Come here. Come here. Oh, David's family got a puppy. Come here. 
I think that we're about to meet he's, the puppy. He's trying Heidi. to play. He's trying to play. Oh, he thinks like you're calling to him and he's like, yeah, I want to play. Oh, what's his name? Sherlock. Yeah. Sherlock. He keeps running in the studio and then, and then running out and he doesn't, he doesn't understand why, what I'm doing in here, why I'm talking, why there's this contraption on my head and so forth. <laughs> um, here, here, I'll turn Do your the... kids love him. He's. Aww. Oh, wow. He's a little beauty. Stop being so cute. Oh, I can't stand it. Even that puppy would make Asher Lev happy. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of what kind of dog? He's a Brittany. A Brittany? Yeah. He's white with brown markings yeah. in these kind of brown floppy ears. He looks way about yep. 20 pounds. I feel pounds, like Logan maybe. should take all of this out because yeah, everyone's going to feel so sad that they missed they out on Sherlock. Sherlock. We'll so post the picture. Alternative. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There you go. All right, Tim. I know you got to go. I got to go. See you all right. Bye, we'll Tim. We'll see you at the Q&A. Mm-hmm. Bye. All right, Hattie, any final thoughts from you? I have no final thoughts, but I just love this book so much. Yeah, same. It's amazing. Uh, you know, the, have you, are you going to read the, the sequel, the follow-up? Yeah, that's on my, yes, yes, I am. Over Christmas break. That's my goal. I really, really, really want it to live up to this first book. I'm like a little bit apprehensive. <laughs> well, I mean, he's written a lot of books that are highly regarded, so yeah. it's not going to be terrible. Yeah. Uh, okay. So next week we do the Q&A. Uh, then we will be doing the um, end of year episode the following week. So we're going to get a bunch of the different Close Reads contributors on and we're going to talk about our favorite books of the year, both on the show and then also Think Be Read that we're not on the show. So I know that's one of our most popular episodes. Everyone's excited for that. Um, and uh, don't forget that you can check out our conversation on Till We Have Faces over on Substack, closestreads.substack.com. If you want to do that, this would be a great time of year to give a, you know, a Substack, Close Reads HQ subscription as a gift to the close reader in your life. Just throwing it out there. Um, so thanks to everyone. Especially your C.S. Lewis fan. Yeah, because we're going to go on a run here. Yeah, we're gonna we go are on a about to. That's exactly right. I cannot wait. I am like so excited about that, David. We're going to embark Yes. On the uh, the ransom trilogy after we finish until uh, we have faces. All right, Heidi, it's been fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, excited to get the questions next. Also, time. tomorrow's your uh, birthday. But, but yeah, of course, it'll be by like, the time this goes on. Your birthday will be old news, be, but it's yeah, exactly it's, yeah, it's exciting right now. <laughs> and we're even recording a couple days earlier than normal. So yeah, <laughs> our normal recording time that would have been yesterday. It's gonna be. A, Oh, like a whole week after my birthday by the time this comes out. But anyway, thanks for mentioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, okay, well, for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.